top Democrat strategists and other useless wastes of human flesh are sending out distress signals over new polling data, which shows that the left's strategy of shredding every dearly held tradition and belief of American culture may not be quite as clever as some had thought. Among the signals of distress being sent by Democrats are jumping off high buildings while shrieking, we're going to lose every election until the year 3000, and wearing sandwich signs in the street announcing that CNN and reality are actually two different places. The polling data shows the opinions of voters in swing states, so-called because the voters there enjoy Nelson Riddle music and hanging people who try to tell them sell them socialism. According to the poll, 78% of swing state voters consider freshman congresswoman Alexandria Occasional Cortex a raving ignoramus, with 86% of the 78% having learned this from reading the news, while the remaining 14% guessed the right answer by chance. 53% of the voters in swing states can identify Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, either by name or just as that anti-American Jew-hating shrike. 37% of those who can identify her work for the Transportation Security Administration, and the remaining 16% are willing to pretend to work for the TSA if it means Omar will be body searched every time she gets on a plane. Socialism was viewed favorably in swing states by almost 67% of the voters whose parents had named them Shea, while the remaining 33% of Shays have changed their name to Ernie and vowed never to visit home again unless there was an inheritance involved. When asked if all illegal aliens should be guaranteed free health care, 86% of swing state voters raised their hands and waved goodbye to the Democrats, while the remaining 14% raised their feet and kicked the Democrats into a gigantic pit while screaming, this is Sparta. Alexandria Occasional Cortex reacted to the poll by calling the voters racist. The voters reacted to being called racist by chuckling softly in anticipation of next year's election. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. All right, here we are again, broadcasting from beautiful L.A., where once you go home, you want to stay home because you do not want to go out in traffic. And that is why there's DoorDash. DoorDash connects you to all of your favorite restaurants in your city, not just L.A., but anywhere. Ordering is easy. Just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and your dasher will bring it right to you wherever you are. Not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are there, too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the United States and Canada. Order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get five bucks off their first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code CLAVEN. That's five bucks off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code CLAVEN. Again, that's promo code CLAVEN for five bucks off your first order from DoorDash. You will be eating well and saying to yourself, and no one will understand you because your mouth will be full. The genius of political correctness is that it takes principles of common decency and transforms them into instruments of mental tyranny. All people of goodwill should turn their backs on racism, but when racism is defined as the rejection of oppressive leftist policies, the word simply becomes an instrument of political control and censorship. 
All people of goodwill should want women to be treated decently and politely, of course. But when that principle morphs into the blithering idiocy of believe all women, unless they're accusing a Democrat, we know we're just being played. When you transform common decency into leftist power politics, only the indecent jerks will be able to fight back. Hence, our current jerk-in-chief, Donald Trump, who has become a hero to many non-jerks by being a big enough jerk to break the mental chains of political correctness and fight back against the left. Now, here's the thing about being a jerk. Short term, it's a great strategy. If you treat women badly, you'll get more sex. I'm sorry, that's just true. You will. Screw your friends and you'll thrive in business. Bully people who disagree with you and they'll probably back down. In truth, short term, there's only one good reason not to be a jerk, and that is you're a jerk, which is a miserable thing to be. But over time, being jerk has its drawbacks, not 100% of the time, but often. If you're a jerk, you get to sleep with a lot of women, but not the women who are worth sleeping with. You may thrive by cheating and bullying, but when you stop thriving and you need a friend, you're out of luck. And when being a jerk becomes a habit, it gets easier and easier to wander across the line into criminality. A lot of once successful jerks end up behind bars. President Trump's tweet telling freshman congresswomen, the squad, to go back where they came from was a jerk tweet. It wasn't racist. Trump's not a racist, and that's not what he meant. He was probably thinking of Ilhan Omar, who is an ungrateful, American-hating, Jew-hating immigrant who deserves all the harsh words you can sling at her and should go back to Somalia. But AOC and Rashi Tlaib and Ayanna Presley are American-born idiots, and telling them to go back where they came from is ugly street talk beneath anybody who's not a jerk. Now, Whenever Trump is a jerk, the never-Trumpers clutch their pearls, oh, how awful he is, and the pro-Trumpers beat their chests and say, yeah, so what? We know where these guys stand. Here's the problem. The Democrats are now a radical, anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-capitalist party, and it would be a tragedy for our country if we lost the next election to them. So ask yourself the question, when Trump behaves like a jerk, Is there one person anywhere who didn't vote for him last time who says, you know, I didn't vote for him last time, but now that I see what a tremendous jerk he is, sign me up? No, of course not. He pleases his base with jerkiness, but he doesn't expand his base, and he's going to need to expand his base in order to win. And we need him to win, because as big a jerk as Trump is, he's an amateur compared to the opposition. Here, you know, the the thing is, You know the old saying, when your enemies are killing each other, don't interrupt? I mean, this is the problem. we, We were having a great time. The left was absolutely coming apart at the seams. You know, Nancy Pelosi went to the squad, gathered the caucus together, and she went in and she told the squad to knock it off, stop picking on everybody. And the moderates who make up most of the Democrat Party or at least most of the Democrat Congress, the moderates were with her. You know, she had them with her and she was trying to shut these women up. And then... AOC and the squad, they said, well, she's just picking on women of color. And AOC's uh, chief of staff, that idiot, Psychot Shakarbati, uh, basically accused the moderates of being segregationists and signing on to segregation. Rahm Emanuel is reported to have called Shakarbati a snot-nosed punk. So these guys are not making friends within the Democrat Party. Steve Scalise summed up, I think, what Americans saw when they're, what the Americans are seeing when they look at the Democrat Party right now. 
Well, it's ugly and getting uglier, and, and you are seeing this fight between the far-left socialists and liberals. It used to be in the Democrat Party a fight between liberals and moderates. There are no moderates left. It's literally liberals versus socialists, and the socialists are winning. But for Nancy Pelosi to think that she can silence AOC and these other far-left socialists just shows that she's out of touch with what's happening in her own conference, and that, I think, is shocking a lot of people you're because she used to Speaker control it with an iron fist. She's out of touch is what you're saying. Yeah, she, I think she's completely misreading just how much of a grip these far-left socialists have on our conference. Look, AOC is threatening some of the liberals that she's going to run somebody in their primary if they don't vote for mainstream policies. I mean, they, a lot of them ran saying they were going to be pro-life, pro-gun, and anti-Pelosi, and they're all voting uh, to allow a baby to be murdered after it's born alive. They're voting to cut taxes, to, to raise taxes. They're voting to take away your gun rights, and they're voting down the line with Nancy Pelosi, and yet that's not enough for AOC and the socialists. He's absolutely right. This is what America is seeing. And we know this is what they're seeing because Axios uh, released a poll that the Democrats were passing around in kind of a panic saying that this is what America is seeing. It's a recipe for Trump to win. All Trump needed to do was to be quiet. And I'll tell you about that poll in just a second. Let me tell you about Wesley Financial. I know a lot, you know, I've never had a timeshare, but I know a lot of people who have hooked into timeshares and they are really upset about it. And they feel that they have fallen for lies that the salesman told them about timeshares. Like it's a great investment. It's a legacy for the kids. You can stay there wherever you want, whenever you want. None of that is true, apparently. Apparently, that's not the way things work out. And Wesley Financial helps you get out of these timeshare contracts. The ugly truth is with a timeshare, you can never tell how much it's really going to cost or when it's going to end. And many owners trying to sell their timeshares online find out the hard way it's not an investment when they can't get a dollar for it. With those rising annual maintenance and assessment fees, buying a timeshare is like giving the timeshare company a blank check for life. And even when you die, your family can get stuck with a burden. Stop the insanity. There's a way out. If you're stuck in a timeshare nightmare, go to iCancelTimeshare.com timeshare.com and tell them I sent you. Wesley Financial guarantees they will legally get you out of your timeshare contract permanently or you pay nothing. To get your free information kit telling you all about it, go to iCancelTimeshare.com. That's iCancelTimeshare.com. And please tell them I sent you so we can keep the lights on here on The Andrew Clavin Show. Axios released this poll. It says top Democrats are circulating a poll showing that one of the House's most progressive members, Alexandria Occasional Cortex, has become the definitional face for the party with a crucial group of swing voters. But here's the thing, all right? Most of the people recognize her, but almost none of the people approve of her, right? Ocasio-Cortez was recognized by 74% of voters in the poll and 22% had a favorable view. That means the most recognizable Democrat in Congress is somebody that 80% of the people don't like very much. And Rep, uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, she was uh, recognized by 53% of the voters, 9%. 9% had a favorable view. Statistically, in voting, 9% is zero. Same thing with capitalism. Capitalism is represented, is thought 56% favorable, 32% of people are ignorant, so they don't know it's favorable. Socialism is toxic to these voters, said the top Democrat. So the, the Democrats are performing better with the voters in, uh, than in two, with these voters than in 2016, but not as well as they were in 2018, okay? And so that means that they're falling back from when they won back the Congress. And this, look, what does this mean? It means that Trump is alienating people when he uh, is a jerk. I mean, it, it, Trump should have all of these people on his side. So 
He comes out in the middle of this fight, right? In the middle of this fight the Democrats are having, and he sends out this, these, this tweet storm, right? So interesting, this is Trump tweeting, so interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back? Up until that moment, by the way, I agreed with him. Then he says, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it's done? These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. Of course, we know what the left is going to say. I'm not even going to play the left. Races, race, races. They say it about everything, so it doesn't mean anything anymore. But still, Trump doubles down. He says, when will the radical left congresswomen apologize to our country, the people of Israel, and even to the office of the president for the foul language they've used and the terrible things they've said? So many people are angry at them and their horrible and disgusting actions. Again, that tweet is good, right? That's good. But to tell people to go back where they came from when they were born in this country— you know, what is that song from Green Day, American Idiot? The AOC is an American idiot. She is not from another country. She, you know, it does sound racist to tell her to go back where she came from as if she came from some other place because she's not white. I mean, that is what it sounds like. And it, it fuels the left in their trashy strategy of calling everything they disagree with racist. It gives them meat to feed on, right? It's a bad strategy. I mean, you know, the polls now are totally meaningless, so I don't want to quote them, but a lot of them show Trump losing uh, to Republicans, but to Democrats, I mean. But even so, even so, it shouldn't be happening. He should be, he's doing a great job. This guy is doing a great job. Even, you know, the stuff that they were yelling about, about tariffs. Remember when everybody, including the Wall Street Journal, was saying, oh, tariffs, it's the end of the world. It's working. The Chinese are having some of their wor- their, one of their worst economies since the 90s. They're rolling back to the bad old days before they started to realize that communism stank, you know. And that's because of Trump and his tariffs. Companies are leaving China. He's doing Trump is doing a good job. What he's doing in Iran, good job. You know, this is this is what he should be doing. Uh, Barack Obama maybe, maybe slowed them down in getting a nuclear weapon, but he didn't stop them. His stupid deal for which he shut down uh, ant, uh, anti-drug uh, programs in the United States, for which he gave the Iranians money with which they could continue to fund terrorism. That deal was a terrible deal. Trump got out of it. He's now got the Iranians in a panic. That's why they're doing all this stuff in the Strait of Hormuz, where they're trying to sink shipping. They're trying to lure him into a war. And so far, Trump has outsmarted them. He's stayed ahead of them. He is strangling them. He's doing a great job, this guy. And the Democrats are bad people. We need him to be smart. We need him to be smarter than just a jerk all the time. I have no problem with him attacking the squad. They deserve every bad word he can say about them, and I'll get to that in a second. But Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham 2.0, was on Fox and Friends, and he said it exactly, he got it exactly right. I want to ask you a question about the election, because there are a lot of polls that say if the if the election were tomorrow, the president wouldn't win. What does the president need to do to ensure a win? Make sure it's not tomorrow. Uh, so, no, he's going to win. If you'll just, Mr. President, you're going to win. Just knock it down a notch. In what, we, in what way? Well, we all know that AOC and this crowd are a bunch of communists. They hate Israel. They hate our own country. They're calling the guards uh, along our border, the Border Patrol agents, concentration camp guards. Uh, they accuse people who support Israel of doing it for the Benjamins. Uh, they're anti-Semitic. They're anti-America. Don't get down. 
aim higher. We don't need to know anything about them personally. Talk about their policy. That's absolutely right. I mean, you can't attack people harder than he just attacked them. You can't hit them harder than he just attacked them. Don't feed the beast. Don't give them meat to feed on. And I know, you know, I know, believe me, I'm friends with a lot of these, you know, all Trump, all the time guys, you know, who pound their chest and say, yeah, that's what we need. We need more Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, all that stuff. It's bad strategy. It is bad strategy because he needs to get people, women who don't like this kind of talk, he needs to get people on his side. You know, when you are looking at me, you're not just looking at a beautiful specimen of humanity. You're also looking at a company. You're looking, I am a company and I sell my goods to people, my work to people, the Daily Wire, to publishers, to movie people. That's what I do. And if you don't know your numbers as a business, you don't know what your business is about. And the problem is the growing, the problem that businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is they've got all these different business systems. That's where NetSuite comes in handy. NetSuite by Oracle is a business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash Clavin. That's netsuite.com slash Clavin to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash Clavin. And the first thing you want to know is, right, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. The problem is, the thing that Lindsey Graham is saying is so true. This squad, these four women who have just, the only reason they have become a big deal is because the press supports them. The press is as far left as they are, and the press just wants to go further and further left and is urging the Democrat Party further left. And by the way, by the way, Nancy Pelosi is just being smart politically. She's as left as they are. I mean, Steve Scalise is right about this. It's not like Nancy Pelosi is a moderate trying to rein them in. She's a leftist trying to get them to win, to be realistic. All these blue dog Democrats who have been voted, all these so-called moderates, they're voting with Nancy Pelosi. I mean, Scalise is right about this. So it's a left wing party. It's all trickery. But Nancy Pelosi is a good trickster. These people are right out in the open. There was a hearing in Congress with former ICE chief uh, Tom Honan that was absolutely despicable. The first guy was not in the squad, but he is a guy from another country. He's a guy. uh, He was born in Mexico. This is Jesus Garcia goes after this guy who is a law officer. I think he was a New York City cop. Uh, he was the head of ICE. Uh, and, and listen to this disgraceful way that this guy describes the attempt to uh, control our borders. And what Honan said is, is, Homan says is absolutely true. Mr. Homan, do you understand that the consequences of separation of many children will be lifelong trauma and carried across generations? Have we not learned from the internment of Japanese Americans. Mr. Holman, I'm a father. Do you have children? How can you possibly allow this to happen under your watch? Do you not care? Is it because these children don't look like children that are around you? I don't get it. Have you ever held a deceased child in your arms? First of all, your comments are disgusting. I've served my country. I've served my country for 34 years. I find your this comments is, this is out of as well. I've served my country for 34 years, and yes, I held a five-year-old boy in my arms. That in back of that tractor trailer, I knelt down beside him and said a prayer for him because I knew what his last 30 minutes of his life were like. And I had a five-year-old son at the time. 
What I've been trying to do my 34 years serving my nation is to save lives. So for you to sit there and insult my integrity and my love for my country and for, the, and for children, that's why this whole thing needs to be fixed. And you're the member we of We agree on that. Fix it. See, this, is the, this is the thing that gets me. Homan says, you're the member of Congress, fix it. The guy, is his job is to enforce the laws that Congress passed. And they don't do anything. And the Democrats, I, you know, some on the right are to blame for this as well. But the Democrats are absolutely dedicated to resisting any change to the border laws, any change. They're going to keep out there what they think are their future voters. They're going to, you know, they're worried. They're worried that black people are going to find out that the Democrats have been screwing them for the past 50 years and stop voting. them. So they want to import some new people. You know, we, we got to get new people in who don't know we're going to be screwing them. They, they that's the whole strategy. And now they blame this guy who's out there trying to enforce the law. They call our guards down there. They call them concentration camp guards. I mean, it is, it's disgusting. He's right. And AOC, and I keep saying this about her, the woman is an ignoramus. And when I say that, I'm being absolutely literal. She doesn't know anything. She doesn't know anything. She is uh, attractive. She is. A, she has an attractive manner if you're on the left. Uh, she looks like she's dedicated. She cries on cue. She knows what she's doing. She's a good actress. And she has, I mean, you could, it would take days to walk from between one of her ears and the other of her ears because the empty space, space in between is a veritable Sahara desert. I mean, she's just a moron. If she goes off against Homan, not a moron, an ignoramus, let's keep it exact, exact. She goes off on Homan and he takes her to pieces. It's almost painful to watch which includes family separation. The same as is whenever a U.S. citizen parent gets arrested when they're with a child. Zero tolerance was interpreted as the policy that separated children from their If parents. I get arrested for DUI and I have a young child in a car, I'm gonna be separated. When I was a police officer in New York and I arrested a father for domestic violence, I separated that Mr. father Mr. Holman, with all due respect, legal asylees, are not charged with any crime. When you're in the country illegally, it's violation 8 United States Code 1325. Seeking asylum is legal. If you want to seek asylum, you go through the port of entry, do it the legal way. The Attorney General of the United States has made that clear. Okay. <laughs> okay. That, that is, you know, they say online, uh, TFW, the feeling when. That's the feeling when you're suddenly not on CNN. You know, like a lot of the, these punks go up against bigger people because they can attack them online. And then they find out when they attack a, a bigger guy in person, he, he knocks your lights out. That's exactly what just happened to her there. She goes on Twitter she, where all her friends are. She goes on CNN where all her friends are. She goes on all the talk shows where all her friends are. And nobody says, you do not know what you're talking about. You are an empty headed dame. And that's, that's just an amazing thing. And again, it is disgusting for Congress who passes the laws to scream about the people who enforce the laws. It's a fake from beginning to end. I do not want to see children suffer. I know they're being used by people, by the coyotes and also by the immigrants, uh, the illegal immigrants who are coming in. I know they're being used. I do not want to see them suffer. I don't want to see, I don't want to see any of these people suffer. I know they're coming from, uh, you know, crap hole countries, as, as Donald Trump would say. You know, I know that's, that's true. I don't want to see them suffer. But the, it matters that the law is enforced. It matters that the law is enforced because that's what keeps us equal. We're not equal if the law changes according to the good, compassionate hearts of the left. We're not equal if 
the law is not enforced. If you pass a law and it applies to person A but not to person B, we're not equal. That's why people are always saying we're a nation of laws, not of men. That's what that means. It means we don't go by our hearts and our goodness and our sweetness. We go by the law because the law is equal for everybody. And when the law is wrong, we have some people who are called legislators who are supposed to change the law. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, when you have an unjust law, you obey it until you have to, until you can change it. And that, I think that that is actually the Christian way. I think that that is why Jesus doesn't throw laws away. He simply transforms them uh, through, his, through his insight into them, seeing as he wrote them in the first place. You know, and, and this is what, what is so frustrating. And on top of this, the racism on the left is so thick. This is what drives me crazy about the left. That racism is so thick. You know, one of the other, the kind of least, the kind of Ringo star of the squad is this woman, Ianna Presley, uh, who I think, I, I can't remember. Is she from Illinois or from uh, Massachusetts? Thank you, from Massachusetts. So they had that Netroots thing, which is the uh, the left-wing gathering um, uh, for, that the Daily Coast puts out. And uh, she went on there and she basically said, we do not want black people unless they are black in the way we say they have to be black. I mean, this is the racism of the left writ large. Here it is. I don't want to bring a chair to an old table. This is the time to shake the table. This is the time to redefine that table. Because if you're going to come to this table and for all of you that have aspirations of running for office, for whatever lived experience and identity that you represent, if you are not prepared to come to that table and to represent that voice, don't come. Because we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims that don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice. Come on, speak it. And if you're worried about being marginalized and stereotyped, please don't even show up because we need you to represent that voice. Think about that for a minute. We don't want any queers if they're not going to be a queer voice. I mean, think about that. We don't want any blacks if it's not going to be a black voice. And we know what that means. I mean, this is why this is why the people at The New York Times say a former newspaper. This is why the people of The New York Times actually believe that we are racist because they set the standard of what racism is, meaning leftism. By, by being racist, it means you're against leftism. If you're against leftism, you're racist. And then they surround themselves with people who disagree with them. And there's nobody at the New York Times to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because people disagree with you, just because people want to get someplace by a different road, just because people want to preserve American freedom, doesn't make them racist. There's no one to say that at the New York Times. There's no one to say it at CNN. There's no one to explain to Don Lemon that he's a jackass who's calling people names that he shouldn't be calling them because that's what they all believe. And not only, did, that's net roots, right? That is the left's uh, daily coast wanting to control the voices online, basically. And there's, they have all that power. They are doing that. They are enforcing that racism online. You know, there's a woman who uh, works for The Blaze, Deneen Borelli, who had a show. What, what was the show called? It was called Here's the Deal. Here's the Deal. She had a show on, on Facebook, and it was getting millions of hits. And she says, and I'm sure this is true, she says Zuckerberg strangled her videos. And you know they can do this. They do it, they've done it to, to us. They do it to a lot of people. And Zuckerberg, you know, <laughs> Zuckerberg has this kind of, this thing where he does, that he apologizes. You know, first he kills you, and then he apologizes, and then he kills the next guy, and he apologizes for that, and he just keeps killing people, you know? So, so 
here's here's Deneen Borelli, her show, she's taking her show, here's the deal, off the air, because Zuckerberg strangled her. There were times I would get 20,000 Facebook views per hour. Now, I'm down to as little as 30,000 views in a matter of days. Gee, how does that happen, Zuckerberg? It happens when your left-wing company decides that popular, conservative voices should be silenced and effectively puts its boot against the throat of a black conservative woman. That's why I call this a social media lynching. That's what we're seeing. That's why Donald Trump held that meeting where he brought, brought uh, right-wing online people to, to talk to him and to talk about censorship. And he's sending a message to them saying, hey, you know, we may still win this in 2020. And if we do, and you tried everything to stop us, we're going to be there. We're going to start talking about some of the things we were talking about last week, like about uh, anti-monopoly actions against these people, which I do believe, I do believe should come in. Hey, we have got the uh, one and only Bill Whittle coming on, but first we got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come to dailywire.com and subscribe. It's a lousy, what is it? A lousy 10 bucks a month? <laughs> a lousy 100 bucks for the entire year. You get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. You get to be in the mailbag. You get all the shows. You get all the shows on The Daily Wire. It is a great deal. So come on over to thedailywire.com. Hey, Bill Whittle, I've told this story a, a million times, but I'll tell it again. Uh, Bill Whittle is one of the reasons I got into commentary. I saw Bill on PJTV, and I thought, well, if he can do that, I can do it. No, what I thought is that guy is so good that what I would like to do is a version of that that's a little crazier, a little bit more uh, Monty Python. And uh, and that uh, it was really inspiring to me. And we, he and I worked together at PG, PJTV a long time. You can go on and see our old videos where we chatted together. And now, Bill, who is an expert. He is an expert on space travel and air flight. He's an excellent pilot, uh, such a good pilot that I'm afraid to get into a plane with him because he just is so good. He will do things that I don't want to uh, be any part of. But he has now got this brilliant, brilliant new uh, podcast, Apollo 11, about what we saw. And part two is out today. And uh, over the weekend, I think it reached number three on iTunes. So this thing is tearing it up. And Bill Whittle is going to join us. Uh, let's just take a look at the Apollo 11 uh, trailer that we've put out. Welcome to Apollo 11 Mission Control. Uh, what's left of it anyway? The space race, 12 years of open warfare between two superpowers. The United States and the Soviet Union. We used our best missiles, our best pilots. Scientists and engineers. We employed aircraft carriers, radar stations, all the military hardware we had to defeat our ideological nemesis when each team had over 20,000 nuclear warheads apiece. The space race was the defining act of the second half of the 20th century. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement. 50 years ago, men from planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. You owe it to yourself and to history to experience the space age from the inside and see how it took hundreds of small steps to get to that one giant leap. I'm Bill Whittle, and this is What We Saw. You old reprobate. It's good to see you, pal. How you doing, Bill? Hello, Clavin. <laughs> 
This looks great. This it's is really and fun. congratulations. It's doing Thank so you. well. So Thank you. you know, it's always been your area of expertise is bringing history to life and really getting at the facts. I remember uh, when you took what's his name from the Daily Show. You took him apart over the Hiroshima. Yeah, the bomb. atomic bombs. Yeah, 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 that was it's one of your great, great videos. I think they banned it on YouTube after well, a while. You know, <laughs> I have to tell you, when we started doing this, when I actually had the scripts written, I I texted some of the powers that be here, and I said, you know, I have had. I've had to labor for 10 years now under the under the burden of the very best thing I did was the very first thing I did. And that's not fun at all. No, no. That's but I have a feeling this is definitely uh, an illegal. Itself. But this is this is something you really know about oh, I mean, yeah. every time we've talked. Well, how, did, how did you get into this in the first place? Well, a lot of the story, uh, a lot of my story is woven into the Apollo story to kind of ground it and give it a little yeah. sense of history. Uh, I saw the Thunderbirds when I was five. That made me want to be a jet pilot. And I got a telescope when I was uh, 12 and started working in the Miami Planetarium when I was 14. As I say in the in the script, a lot of people wanted to be astronauts, but by the time I was six, I was I was an astronaut. The, <laughs> the, the certification and the training is just small details we'll take care of, you know, downstream. But um, I ended up flying a lot of experimental airplanes and, and just getting as close to this as I can. But the nice thing about this, the thing I like most about this this series is there's an awful lot of stuff that's probably just best described as kind of like backstage stuff, stuff, the kind of stuff that most people wouldn't really have any way of knowing about. Huh. Like, give, give me an example. Um, Gordon Cooper flew four missions after he died. <laughs> what does that mean? I'll let you watch. Yeah. You find out tomorrow. Here's a great example of little kind of things that are going on. So you have the Mercury 7 astronauts and Alan Shepard's the first American in space. Yeah. If he had ridden the flight that the chimp rode, he'd be the first person in space. So Gagarin beats him and us and wallops us. At the end of the Sputnik era, the first four satellites, they are the Soviets are beating us by a, a throw weight of 40 to 1. Mm. 40 to 1. Um, so Shepard has to uh, delay and go to the moon. He has an ear problem. It grounds him for about 10 years. He goes to become part of the astronaut office. Finally, he gets a surgery done, and he's ready to get back in the rotation. And his friend Deke Slayton puts him on Apollo 13. And Alan Shepard goes to Jim McDivitt, who just did a mission, and said, hey, I'd love you to be my lunar module pilot. And McDivitt says, no, I don't think so. You're not experienced enough. It's a <laughs> fun thing to tell the, the first American in space. So, so Shepard gets inserted as the commander of Apollo 13. Gordo Cooper gets bumped from that flight. And then when they realize that Shepard doesn't have really a whole lot of training because he's been down for 10 years, Shepard and Lovell and Deke Slayton have a conversation. They say, hey, Jim. How, would, how about if we do this? Why don't you take Apollo 13 and we'll put, uh, we'll put Alan Shepard on Apollo 14, give him another couple months to train. You guys get to go three months earlier. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and so for, uh, so for the rest of their lives, every time they met each other, just as a running joke, uh, uh, Lovell would say to uh, Shepard, hey, Alan, I want to talk to you about that mission switch that we did. <laughs> um, but this kind of thing, Gordo Cooper gets so completely furious about this, he just resigns. Wow. Uh, dies in 2004, then he flies a mission uh, a few years after that where the capsule gets lost for uh, several months. Then he flies again on the Falcon 1, which explodes. Then he flies a third time uh, on a SpaceX mission, unmanned mission to resupply the space station. He and, and Mr. Scott from Star Trek go up together. <laughs> and, and they're in space for about a month, and then Mr. Scott and Gordo Cooper basically turn into uh, ionized gas uh, at, at as the you do, as, <laughs> but, as one as one often does. But, but but let's put this put this in some kind of context because sure. a lot of the people you're talking to, 
they're young people. They don't know anything. This this was an amazing moment. I mean, this, there was a reason this mattered so much. Though. Yeah, and context is the whole thing, Drew. I mean, once I started to block it out, I realized the reason so many people have a hard time understanding this or even believing it happened is because it's presented to them like it's something that just kind of parachuted into our lives. Right, right, and right. Like we're watching the Carol Burnett show and it's like, hey, news, breaking news that we've just landed on the moon, apparently. We'll have film at 11. What they don't understand is that there's nothing about Apollo 11 that's miraculous when you compare it to Apollo 10. Hmm. There's nothing about 10 that's miraculous compared to 9, 9 that's compared to 8, 7, all the way down to the bottle rocket. I tried to go from a 4th of July bottle rocket to the Falcon uh, 9 Heavy without any magic in between. Hmm. It's all just a series of incremental steps. And when you when you see and hear just the total number of flights and how much we learn, you, also, you almost have to ask yourself, at what point in this deck are you going to insert this conspiracy, right? I mean, did John Glenn go into space? Oh, you, okay. mean, oh, you mean the whole thing about that we never went to the well, moon? Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the reasons it's so easy to think that the, uh, that the moon landing was, was faked was because it's presented as the moon landing. Uh-huh. But with four hours to spend here, I, I did the whole space race. I mean, I did mm. all of it. Right, right. So every step of the way is actually traceable, right? Yeah, and, and, and they're so incremental and so small. Yeah. That if you if you're able to watch the whole thing, not only do you get a really good sense of it, but you also you realize that there's nothing really astonishing and, and here. It, and it also was a, a, a race. I mean, we were up against the, war. the Soviet Union, and people you know people make fun of that now, but these were two no. competing philosophies: one a slave philosophy, and one a philosophy of free men. And we're trying to show who could do it better. Right. And so, what do we use in our in our? This is the this was the this was the actual shooting war part of the Cold War. So if you think about it, what we ended up using were our best missiles, our best test pilots, our best, we had aircraft carriers for recovery, we had radar stations, all of this military hardware. And the only reason we can't really use it in the field is because they've got 25,000 nuclear warheads, we do too. So all of this technology gets applied to this, to war. It was a, it was a war. Right. And I talk about in the beginning how, you know, when Sputnik comes over America, you're, October 3rd, you're sitting there with, you know, mom and dad and sis and Sonny and, and you're eating TV dinner and watching Ozzy and Harriet and all's well with the world. The next day, beep, 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 there's a Soviet <laughs> sphere going overhead and we know what happens when those spheres come down. And, and you and I remember that growing up in, the, in that age, I didn't, expect to, I didn't expect to see adulthood. I, I really fully expected mm. to be vaporized at some point. Really? Yeah, yeah no, most, most of I'm, us did. Uh, yeah. You know, it's hard yeah. to believe back then. But yeah, that's that's really it. And and the fun thing, too, is that I get to go back even before the space race because a lot of things that uh, people today don't understand, they don't have the computers for it. And so I say you can't really understand the moon landing if, unless you can really understand a cap gun <laughs> because this is not Red Dead Redemption and we don't have a graphics engine and a special effects yeah. and a particle system. We have a, a mechanical thing that we want to pull the trigger, have it go bang and have smoke come out of it. So how do you solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, and it's, a, yeah. it's an engineering yeah. problem. And the, and the computer, the idea that the computer power that we have on an iPhone is so much greater than what they had in built in entire buildings. This is, we're talking about Apollo 11, what we saw with Bill Whittle, which is just tearing up uh, iTunes, which is great. Let's talk about this. The the government pours all this energy into going to the moon, Mm -hmm. and we have the Apollo program. And then basically, what? Nothing happens after that. So what's the problem? The best spin I ever heard anybody put on this was that America is such an amazing country that we got bored going to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) But that's basically it. I mean, that's basically it. And and Apollo, after Apollo, we essentially did nothing. 
for 40 years, yeah. basically my entire adult life. Yeah. Uh, the, the space station and the shuttle missions, Skylab, all that stuff, is essentially recreating the flight that John Glenn did in 1962. Mm. Yeah. And up until very recently, I thought, yeah, it's just pretty much done. I, I, I was lucky enough to have watched the moon landing uh, from the Plaza Hotel. My dad was a hotel manager, and we were overlooking Central Park. And when Neil Armstrong said the, you know, one small step for man thing, there's just this roar, this wall of sound came up, this kind of cheering. Yeah. And I realized when I was writing, I said, I've never heard that before, since. But turns out I have. And when the, when the two boosters landed on Falcon 9, the kids in the control room at SpaceX, outside the control room, made that same kind of, it's like a, it's like a football cheer mm with afterburners, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, we're actually starting to see some progress again. But yeah, the country just got bored with it. And, and when people say, oh, you had the smartest filmmakers in the world when you had Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, they finished their script somewhere around 65, let's say. Yeah. What's a realistic time that we can pick where we'll have underground bases on the moon and we'll have rotating space stations, nuclear powered mission to, to, to Jupiter. Ah, 2001 ought to be plenty of time. <laughs> Even the masterpiece yeah. Lost in Space yes. decided to launch the Jupiter 2 <laughs> in 1997, I guess. Because in 1965, the idea that you would have a nuclear-powered anti-gravity space saucer taking yeah, yeah, yeah. the family to, to <laughs> Alpha Centauri, 1997 well, ought to be plenty of time to get I, to that place. I, I, re I read a book once on fake science, mm -hmm. and it goes through all this stuff, you know, putting magnets on your elbows and stuff like that, all this <laughs> fake science. And the last one was going to Mars. Mm -hmm. And I thought, really? That's fake science? We, he said, no, it, it'll never be done. It'll never be done. Is he right? No, he's absolutely dead wrong. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's going to be done. It's going to be done. I think it's going to be done by Elon Musk. And I think mm. it's going to be done by Elon Musk. And I'm serious as I can be about this. The reason I think that Elon Musk is going to do what, what the, the Chinese can't do and the Russians can't do, the Europeans can't do, NASA can't do, is I think he's going to get to Mars. And the reason you know, I think he's going to get to Mars is because the official name of his recovery craft out there in the automated barge is called, of course, I still love you. <laughs> That's the actual official name of the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you have all, you can make a case for it being so much fun and, and exciting yeah. and loose. But what it really comes down to is, if you can have the official name of your recovery be, be uh, of course I still love you. And if you can put a red roadster up in space with David Bowie playing and Don't Panic from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah. that's a company that is controlled by the vision of one person. Uh -huh. It is inconceivable that Boeing would do such a thing, inconceivable. So Boeing, Northrop Grumman, all of these giants all started out, a guy named Boeing, a guy named Northrop, a guy yeah. named Grumman, a guy named Hughes, they ran their company in the golden age of aviation, and they had a vision, and they followed it. Uh, Hughes thought, I'm going to build the world's biggest seaplane, and he built it, and it flew. Yeah. It was useless, but he built it. It was the Hercules, yep. you know, yep. not the Spruce Goose. It was the Hercules. It actually flew. <laughs> but, but because he had control of his company, he could, he could <laughs> do something as silly as the, as the Spruce Goose, and that's what it takes, is it takes that kind of vision. That's a br brilliant point. Bill Whittle, what we saw, Apollo 11, it's great. And congratulations again. It's Thank you. It's doing great. Good to see you. Let me finish with a final reflection about a piece that is in the Wall Street uh, Journal today, Disorder Rises in de Blasio's New York. I knew this was going to happen. I've been telling my friends in New York it's going to happen. Graffiti and petty crime are rampant again. This piece is written by Eugene O'Donnell, who's a lecturer at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. That's where they train a lot of cops. He's talking about the fact that violent crime has been on, was in decline 
in New York for decades, and many New Yorkers took, take their safety for granted. Now, subway fare evasion has become widespread and fashionable. Some see, see it as a form of rebellion. Petty theft, like stolen package deliveries, is rampant. A cohort of elective officials seem to believe, even if they don't say it, that shoplifting is a mere settling of scores, especially if the victim is an accursed big box or high-end store. Bill de Blasio has basically been using the, uh, the uh, criminal justice system as a whipping boy, saying these guys are racist, this is wrong, the people who are being arrested are the victims. This is how New York descended into absolute chaos and madness in the 70s and 80s. I was there. You could not go out to get a pack of gum at night without taking your life in your hands. We all knew it. People wouldn't visit me in New York because they were afraid for their lives. You know, when, when um, give me the name of the mayor who turned New York again. Oh, Giuliani. <laughs> Giuliani, thank you. When Rudy Giuliani became mayor, he was called racist every single day. Anything that went wrong was a problem with Giuliani. When a, a, a black guy would get beaten up by the cops, they would say, oh, it's Giuliani time. This is Giuliani's fault. He stuck with it. He was as big a jerk as Donald Trump. He was as tough a jerk as Ronald Reagan. And he stuck with it. And he faced them down. And he turned that city around. Now we hear about mass incarceration. There never was such a thing as mass incarceration. Each person who was incarcerated was incarcerated by due process of law. And most of them, all of them, I think, were committing crimes. And that's what brought crime down. It was Comstat. It was getting rid of these low-level crimes like fair jumping and graffiti. It was arresting people for that and holding people responsible for it. The fact that they are letting New York unravel as LA has begun to unravel, as Seattle has already unraveled, as Portland has already unraveled, as San Francisco has already unraveled, just shows you one thing. People forget. People want so badly to be virtuous, to seem nice, that they are willing to let uh, public order go and let their cities fall into disrepair. It happened in the 70s. It's happening again now. And it's all leftism. It's total leftism. There's nothing else to blame. And so when I say, when I talk about the fact that Donald Trump is being a jerk, I'm only talking about the fact that I think he's not being strategic. I'm not talking about what he's doing because he's doing an excellent job. I got to end there. I'm traveling tomorrow, but I will be on the air. Uh, I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. See you tomorrow. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but President Trump's tweets will never hurt you. A leftist terrorist tries to blow up an immigration center in Washington, but the mainstream media blacks it out to cover more Trump tweets. We will examine controversies and non on The Michael Knowles Show. Check it out.